1 Peter chapter 2, beginning at verse 18. Peter writes, Slaves, submit yourselves to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if a man bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because he is conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word this morning, thank you for it. And would you open our eyes to see the truth that is here and to see how even though our situation is different from the age in which Peter lived, that there are principles here that still apply and you still want us to honor you in our workplace. And so, Lord, would you help us to do that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today we're going to be talking about Christians in the Marketplace. And uh, if you are a student, I'd ask you to think about how you could apply this to your school situation. If you're in business, whether you're an employee or an employer, I want you to think about these principles in regard to your work. If you're retired, you know, I'd like you to think about how God continues to want to use you to have an influence on others where you uh, live and where you serve, or maybe you volunteer in other settings too. God wants us to bring Christ to the marketplace. And for most of us, the biggest part of our day is spent in those settings, at work or at school or some situation like that. And a few of us work in settings where we work with other Christians and we have that opportunity to serve Christ in that setting. But most of you work in settings where you're with a business that is secular, uh, you're around others who don't know Christ as well as maybe some Christians scattered in where you work. And uh, it is God's will for all of us to bring Christ into that marketplace, into those settings. For many of us, this is our biggest challenge, but it is also our greatest opportunity to have a ministry for Christ outside of the church. I mean, we spend so many hours in those other situations that we can't just look of, you know, our Christian life being something we do on Sunday God wants to work through us in every situation in our life, including our work. Now, being a Christian in the marketplace isn't easy, and it never has been easy. Uh, we serve a different master than the world. We serve Jesus Christ, and he is our boss. Uh, we have a different value system, a value system that's based on the Word of God. And so rather than following what the world might say is good or right or the way to go about things, uh, we choose to live by the standards of God's Word. And thirdly, we have a different goal. Our goal is to honor God in all that we do. Our goal isn't to, uh, you know, it's not that the bottom line, uh, the bottom line isn't profit, 
You know, it's not that as Christians we don't want to make a living or make a profit. We do. But that's not the bottom line. That's not the final judge by which we are measured. We want to honor God in the way that we go about our work. And if he chooses to bless our business so that we have the means to help others, we give thanks to him and we use those gifts that we have been given appropriately. When we think about the marketplace too, uh, there are some things to note about it. The marketplace is competitive. Uh, It is that way for everybody, whether you're a Christian or not a Christian. Uh, But occasionally, you're going to run into situations where maybe your competition chooses to do something unethical. And you may feel like that places them at an advantage and you can't do that because you are a believer. But on the other side, we see often where being a believer and being known as someone who is honest, a person of integrity or who is dependable in their work, brings you an advantage in the marketplace. The marketplace is unfair. It's not always just or fair. Uh, Sometimes you may work for a business or a company for 10 years or 20 years and be let go. And you put in all that time and it's hard to be loyal to a company you feel like isn't necessarily loyal to you in return. And sometimes it even happens that people work, you know, until they're in their 50s or even early 60s and are laid off. And you're feeling like you're so close to retirement, what am I supposed to do now? The marketplace isn't always fair. And the marketplace is secular. You may work at a place where gossip and slander and backbiting is just part of the conversation. Or maybe you're in a shop or or business where there are crude jokes and profanity and that's part of the normal conversation. You may work in a place that is hostile to your faith where you're not sure if you can speak up for the things that you really value because it may come back at you. You're being forced to be politically correct in all things and you may feel differently on some of the issues that are facing our country and our world. There might be tense relationships. It might be that it's no longer a joy for you to go to work because morale is so low in your office place or your company. Can you identify with any of those situations? I would guess that many of you can. I've heard the conversations or you've shared with me some of the struggles you face in your office or your workplace and you wrestle with that. So the question we want to think about today then is how do we live for Christ in the marketplace? And how do we honor him? How do we bring Christ into our work? Well, the first thing that I see here in this passage is that we are to be loyal to our employer. Or if you are an employer who owns a business, you are to be loyal to your employees. Look at verse 18. Peter is speaking in his context, and he is talking to those who have come to know Christ, and many of them came out of this situation in which they were slaves. And he said, Slaves, submit to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if a man bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because he is conscious of God. I think the first question that we need to ask, you know, when we come to a passage like this is, okay, Peter's talking about slaves and slavery. Does that really apply to us in this situation? I mean, can we bring these things across? 
And it is true that our situation is different, but the principles taught here still apply to the workplace. And let me share a couple reasons why. One is that the slaves that Peter was addressing were domestic servants. They were members of households and they served in a variety of occupations. Some would work in the house, some would work in the fields. Uh, and they did many different things. Now, there were those that were slaves. We wouldn't normally think of slaves being teachers and doctors and skilled craftsmen. But in their world, uh, there were people that were slaves or servants who were in those roles as teachers, as doctors, as skilled tradesmen. And many are surprised when they come to the New Testament that the New Testament doesn't just condemn all slavery. But the reason it doesn't is that slavery in the New Testament was significantly different than the slavery we think of in America prior to the Civil War. Now, it's true, there was a broad range here in terms of what being a slave might mean even in the New Testament era. But generally, it was different. And the two primary ways that it was different was that in the New Testament era, there was the opportunity for freedom. Someone who was a slave was not a slave for life. They could earn enough money or someone could purchase their freedom. Manumission was possible. And secondly, it wasn't racial uh, like African-American slavery was. It wasn't just focusing on one group. Uh, anyone could be a slave at some time in their life for different reasons. In fact, in the Roman era, it was estimated that one-third of the people were slaves. And sometimes they did it to pay off a debt. If they owed someone a debt and they didn't have the money to pay it, they would, uh, in a sense, indenture themselves for a time where they would work off that debt and then they'd be set free. Or they could pay their uh, amount that they needed to purchase their freedom and they could go free. In Judaism, all slaves were to be set free after six years of labor. And some who were in good situations where they had a master who was kind and fair or generous chose to be slaves for life. That's where the term bond slave comes from. And if they made that decision, then they would have their ear pierced as a sign that they had become a bond slave of this individual. Now, you know, that's a different meaning for having a pierced ear, isn't it? You know, in their world from ours. And in a sense, when you look at slavery in the New Testament, it was the way the system worked. It was the way the economy worked. And it wasn't always cruel and unjust. That's why the New Testament's focus isn't to try and overthrow slavery at that point. The focus was to honor Christ. And to this fledgling church that was just getting started, they wanted people to honor Christ, whatever their situation, slave or free, you know, whether you were a master or an owner in that sense, or whether you were someone who worked for another person. All right. Just a couple other comments, though, on uh, slavery. Just for the record, you know, when people ask, why doesn't the New Testament condemn slavery in every situation? Uh, there is one exception to that. In 1 Timothy 1.10, Paul does include slave traders in this list of sins in which are condemned. Uh, the New Testament does condemn those who were involved in the slave trade, in other words, those who enslaved others by force. 
So in that sense, the New Testament has always been opposed to any kind of forced slavery. Instead, what we are looking at here uh, with this uh, people who would become slaves for a certain time and then purchase their freedom, in some situations, uh, in our day and age, it might be comparable to a person who, a man or a woman who uh, signs up for the military and agrees to serve for a number of years in order to have their college education paid for. Or it may be like a person who's going to med school and they commit to work for a number of years without pay while they're getting their education or training in the hope that they are going to have a better job later and be able to pay for that. So it was indeed different. Uh, Historically, just an aside here too, uh, I read a book on Latin American history that was very good on talking about what took place in that area as well as Latin America developed. And it was interesting to me to read that out of all the slaves that were brought from Africa to the New World, only 6% came to the United States. Uh, 50% went to Brazil. Uh, Over 30% were in the Caribbean, and most of those who were brought to this new world worked on those sugar plantations and situations like that. But because we grew up in the United States, that's the slavery that we hear about most and have focused on, but all of those nations in the new world that participated in that had to address the issue of slavery in the new world. Going back to the text then, What Peter is saying to those who were in that situation is he is saying, I want you to submit to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. I want you to honor Christ and work well, not only for those who are fair and reasonable, but also those who are cruel and unjust. Wow. That's a tough word to hear, isn't it? I mean, he's saying, even if you are in that situation, I want you to honor Christ. I want you to pray for your masters. Wow. What the New Testament is saying to us then in our situation is that God wants us to be the best employee we can be, whether our boss is good or bad. God wants us to be respectful, to be honest, to be hardworking. And if you can't do your work as unto the Lord, then maybe... You need to find a different job or vocation where you can do that and trust God to provide for you. Let your faith show in the way that you work. Now, in the 1800s in America, Andrew Carnegie made his fortune in steel. He was the one who found a large-scale way to produce steel. Before that time, others had known that by adding carbon to iron, you could temper it, make it stronger, and produce a stronger material called steel. But how do you do that on a scale that you can build bridges and skyscrapers? That's what Andrew Carnegie came up with, and that's what made him a very wealthy man. And he had an employee who worked for him who was one of the first men in America to make more than $1 million a year as an employee. And that man's name was Charles Schwab. And Schwab was paid that amount largely because of his ability to work with people. And here's what Schwab said in his own words. He said, I consider my ability to arouse enthusiasm among the men the greatest asset I possess. And the way to develop the best that is in a man is by appreciation and encouragement. 
There is nothing else that so kills the ambitions of man as criticisms from his superiors. I never criticize anyone. I believe in giving a man incentive to work. So I am anxious to praise, but loathe to find fault. If I like anything, I am hearty in my approbation and lavish in my praise. That's interesting, isn't it? I mean, can you apply that to your setting? Could you apply that to your work and see how that might make a difference with the people who work for you or who you work with? Could you apply that to your teaching and working with students? Or if you're a coach, could you apply that to coaching and bringing out the best in your athletes by praise and encouragement more than criticism and correction? I think that can apply to marriage. I mean that as husbands and wives, we want to be that kind of person who affirms and appreciates and gives thanks for the things that our spouse does. Or parenting. To be that kind of parent who believes in your children, who praises them, encourages them, and does that more often than the correction part. As there are times when we do need to instruct and correct bad behavior and address that. But far more, we need to praise and build up. And when kids know that they are loved and that you believe in them, they respond to that and they grow. So let me ask you, are you an encourager at work? Are you a peacemaker who helps to settle differences and makes the office a good place to work? Do you set a good example by your behavior in terms of honesty or hard work or dependability? Do you care about your coworkers? Do they know that you care about them? Do you pray for them? And do you pray for those who work for you or do you pray for those that you work with? And do you treat them with respect? All of that is part of honoring Christ in the marketplace. Secondly, Peter says that we should be willing to suffer for being a Christian. He isn't saying it will happen in every situation, but it may be that if you are a Christian, you may suffer in your workplace. And if you do, he says, it is commendable if you bear up under it. This is a grace that God has given to you. It is pleasing to God when you are faithful to him even when it is costly. You can go to that next slide on the second point there. And so do you understand what Peter is saying here? He's saying that if you um, are an employee who's lazy and you goof off or you disrespect your boss and you get fired, that's your own fault. I mean, that is an honor God and that's going to get you in trouble. But if you are an employee who's honest and hardworking and you do everything the boss asks of you and you still get overlooked in a promotion or you still get laid off or things like that, God is saying that is commendable to him. When you choose to honor him regardless of the situation you find yourself in. And I've seen that happen. I've seen people in our church who missed out on a promotion because they didn't drink alcohol and they didn't socialize in the same way that some others did and they got passed over in a promotion. I've also seen and heard people share that um, they got passed over because they, quote, wouldn't sell their soul to the company. I mean, some companies want your work to be everything. They want that to be the focus of your life. And as a believer, you're going, no, my commitment is to God and my family and then my work. And yes, I will do my work well, but it's not the most important thing in my life. God is. 
And the world doesn't always understand that, do they? But I've also seen the other side. We had a building contractor in our church who had put in a bid on a large job and there were a number of others bidding on it and he did not get it. He didn't have the lowest bid. And then later in an investigation it came out that the other contractors were in collusion and bidding low and then were going to add to expenses and it was an unethical thing they were doing. And when that was found out, this particular contractor ended up getting more and more work because he was known as someone who was honest and dependable and trustworthy and did the work well. In those times that are difficult, it is important to remember who we serve. And it is the Lord Christ we are serving. Paul writes that in Colossians 3.24. And he also goes on to say, remember that our goal is to be a witness for Christ. And we see that in Titus 2, 9 and 10. Paul says, teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them, and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. I mean, that, that bottom line, that's it for us. We want to live and work in a way that makes the gospel attractive to others. William Carey is a name you recognize. William Carey was uh, the founder of the modern missions movement. But before he went to India as a missionary, he was a shoemaker. And in his business, he had the heart of a missionary already. Everyone who came into his shop would hear about Jesus Christ. He was very free and talking about his relationship with God, and he wanted others to know Jesus too. And one day a friend took him aside and he said, William, all this talk about Jesus is hurting your business. And Carrie replied, my business? My business is to extend the kingdom of God. I only sell shoes to meet my expenses. You know, here was a man who had his priorities right, that he was a Christian first and he was a shoemaker second. And he was going to honor God in the way that he went about his work because he wanted others to know him too. And so I think it's appropriate for us to pray in our work, Lord, help me to remember that you are my boss. You're the one that I am serving ultimately. And Lord, help me to go about my work in a way that brings honor to you and makes the gospel attractive. And I think, you know, that, that takes um, prayerful discernment. You don't want to be obnoxious as a Christian. You don't want to be the kind of person that's always pushing things on people when they're not ready to hear it. But you want to discern when there are open doors and opportunities for you to talk about Christ or when you are challenged and there's a conversation that comes up to take that stand and let it be known that you live for Christ. In all things, we are to follow his example. And that's the third point here. In all things, follow Christ's example. Look at verse 21. Peter said, To this you are called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. That word example is really a good word picture for us when you understand it. The word example means pattern or template. Something that you would use if you were going to trace a pattern or you're going to cut out something. Here's this template that you could use. 
And I think about it like this for all of us, and you go back to your school days and you learn handwriting and you learned how to write in cursive, there were letters on a page that you as a young student traced out. And you're learning how to make those letters properly. And then you had to repeat it over and over again. You were following the pattern that was on the page for you. And that's what Peter is saying we should do when it comes to Christ. We look to him. We follow his example very carefully. And we are called not to suffering. That's not the end goal. But we are called to follow Jesus Christ. And in Peter's letter, there's a progression here. He tells us that we are called, first of all, out of darkness into light, chapter 2, verse 9. And then we are called to inherit a blessing in chapter 3, verse 9. And finally, he tells us that we are called to his eternal glory, chapter 5, verse 10, that one day we will live in his presence forever. That's the goal dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. But our calling to follow Christ means that in this world we're going to experience trials and suffering. It's a part of it because there are going to be times when we are out of step with the world. We serve a different master, we have a different value system, we have a different goal for life and work. And so when things are tough, we look to Jesus and we remember him who suffered for us and we follow in his steps. We follow his example. How did Jesus handle his suffering? Well, Peter quotes from Isaiah 53, that passage that talks about the suffering servant. And he says of Jesus that he committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He uttered no threats. He didn't retaliate. He trusted God. And so should we. Now friends, this doesn't mean that we never speak up or say something when things are wrong in the workplace. It doesn't mean that as a Christian, you can't be a whistleblower if the whistle needs to be blown. It doesn't mean you can't file a complaint when things are unjust or unfair. There is a time to speak up and there's a time to trust. And we ask God for the wisdom in that. And we've seen in this past year examples of how difficult it can be for Christians today to live in the workplace or to run a business or to do that by Christian values. Uh, recently, uh, Duck Dynasty made the news. Some of you uh, may watch that. Uh, you may disagree with how Mr. Robertson stated his views about same-sex marriage and all of that. We might have said it differently, but you saw the backlash that came to him because he was speaking based on what the Scripture taught. And what was sad was that rather than the full transcript of what he said uh, coming out, you know, they picked bits and statements and then they compress it and put it together to try to get a little bit more shock value out of it. And they did that with what he was saying there. Uh, you remember Dan Cathy, the CEO of Chick-fil-A. Chick-fil-A is a company started by a Christian, wanted to run on Christian principles, uh, doesn't have uh, its stores open on Sunday, and he expressed his disappointment a while ago when he was disappointed that our country was moving in support of same-sex marriage. And he made the statement that he thought uh, that 
you know, who are we, or that it was arrogant on our part to redefine marriage, something that God had defined in the Scriptures. And he made those statements, but those statements were unwelcome in the marketplace today. And so there was this backlash of people that wanted to protest against him, and then a strong support that came out supporting what he said. That's the tension we're wrestling with. Or on another issue, uh, David Green, who's the owner and founder of Hobby Lobby, a store or chain of stores that you may be familiar with, uh, he is contesting the Affordable Care Act. David Green's an interesting person. He's become a billionaire. Uh, he's the son of a preacher. He comes from a long line of preachers. Uh, he started Hobby Lobby with a $600 loan. And he took this loan and started in his garage this business making crafts, and it's grown into this large retail chain. But he gives away half of his profits. I mean, he has been so committed to giving to the Lord's work, supporting missions, evangelism, Christian schools, uh, and all of that. And he has tried to get other businesses to do that same thing. His stores close early so the employees can go home in the evening to be with their families. They don't open on Sundays, even though it's a busy work day, because he wants to give them a day of rest and a day to worship. And, you know, in his work in hiring people, uh, he pays 80% above the minimum wage to his employees who start out working there that are full-time. And so he's trying to run this business on Christian principles, and his objection to the Affordable Care Act was the requirement that they pay for abortifacients. Drugs that could be used to cause an abortion. And he goes, as a Christian, you know, he's taking this stand for life. He is not supporting abortion, doesn't want to do that, and asks that he could have an exemption in that area. We'll see what happens. It's part of the challenge today of being a Christian, living in a world that is changing, that is secular. And how do we do that? How do we do that in a way that honors Christ? So as we close this message today, I want you to think about your particular work setting or your school setting and ask the question, how can you be a witness for Jesus at work or at school? What are the challenges and temptations you face? Just identify it. What are the biggest struggles you face? And maybe you want to talk to another businessman or another student or someone in a similar situation and ask, how do you handle this? What have you done? and encourage and pray for one another. And thirdly, most of all, ask the question, what would Jesus do? Jesus, what do you want me to do in this situation? And keep your eyes on him, and then follow in his steps. Let's pray. Father, we see once again how your word speaks to all areas of life. And you more than anyone know the challenges that we face in the workplace. And we want to honor Christ. We want to live for you. We want to live by the truth that your word proclaims. And we trust you. And would you give us that wisdom and discernment whether we are the owner of a business or whether we're an employee who works for someone else. Would you help us to follow in your steps and to honor you by our attitude, by our words, by the way we go about our work. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.